And now, beautiful people going fast on fire. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast, Kino Club Edition. Hello and welcome to True Fiction's Kino Club. Tonight we are celebrating the 35th anniversary of the John Carpenter movie, They Live. Now, They Live is a 1988 American science fiction action horror film directed by John Carpenter based on the 1963 short story, Eight O'Clock in the Morning by Ray Nelson. And it is a very short story. So the movie stars Roddy Piper, Keith David, and Meg Foster. And the film follows an unnamed drifter who discovers through special sunglasses that the ruling class are aliens concealing their appearance and manipulating people to consume, breed, and conform to the status quo via subliminal messages in mass media. But before we get started tonight, Kino Club Roll Call, I'm Pat. I'm Norbert. And Marshall is on assignment. So what did we think of this movie? I hadn't seen it for decades, but one of the things I was struck by was if this movie was produced today, there's a certain resonance. It had the creature were a little, not my favorite design, but the rest of it, like the structure of the movie, the themes that it worked on, I think they're still relevant. I think the movie still is relevant in that sense. I think it, uh, you see a lot of memes with Roddy Piper and the glasses. And there's a reason for that. It's a movie that still, it still holds its value to me. What's interesting about this movie and quite a few John Carpenter movies, when this movie came out, the first week that it came out, it was number one in the box office. It only stayed there for a little while. Stayed in the top 10 for a couple weeks. Critics really panned it. They didn't like it. And yet it became a cult classic. In the later years, it gained significantly more favorable critical reception, which a lot of Carpenter's movies do that. It's also one that has sunk into the pop culture lexicon. It's had a lasting effect on the United States. I love the movie. And part of that is the nostalgia of it because I loved it when it first came out. But part of it too is what exactly what you're saying, Norbert. I think it's very relatable still today. There's a lot of aspects of this movie that you can look at and still see where, okay, that feels like it's analogous with what's going on today, even though it may not be an alien that's taking over, but it feels like the have-nots are being marginalized. And that's a big part of this movie. I, th I think what you said about the have-nots, it's the idea that the elite class will sell out the rest of us. And I can see why the critics wouldn't like it to start with, because it's picking on the ruling elite class. Let's just call them the elite class for our discussion. And I think that that's always going to be true. I think this was a problem in the middle ages. There's brief times where you had more populist leaders who've come, but they don't last very long. And those errors don't last very long. They may affect things down the road. So that idea is always irrelevant and fresh. It feels like in the last several years, it's become even more acute, like how relevant it is. 
And while I was watching, I was like, I think this is a good movie for people to watch. I think it's a theme that runs through Carpenter's work is just base human nature. And he's very good at exposing how people really operate. When you watch it, you're like, okay, maybe that special effect isn't the best or whatever. But what he's talking about has a lot more meat on the bone than just a simple horror movie. At least the movies I've watched. No, absolutely. So this movie came about because of his dissatisfaction with the uh, economic policies of the Reagan administration. One word that you may remember and some of the listeners may remember is Reaganomics and the trickle down. That is what he was raging against. Now, this is the thing that I love about Carpenter. And I think people could take a page from this is that in nowhere in this movie did he mention political parties and the message, although this is what's that started this, the message was universal. And because of that, it didn't matter what political side you were on. You could get behind this movie you, you because he's telling a universal truth like you were talking about. This is universal truth. If it's not the way it is, it's at least the way we feel. A lot of people feel that way. I think there's only a small percentage of us that don't feel like we're being fed a line and the elite class is screwing us over. The other thing about this, too, is that who is promoting this message? And that's the mass media. That's TV, commercials. Everything you watch is trying to sell you something, which is another thing that Carpenter felt about the mass media. And interestingly, I think, I didn't know this, did a little reading, but the glasses... If you notice, when you put the glasses on, you see in black and white. And that was on purpose because to see in black and white, that says that you're seeing what's real. That means that you see it clearly. I thought that was very cool as well. The people that starred in this movie were Roddy Piper, Keith David, and Meg Foster. Roddy Piper, of course, was a wrestler. I do believe this is the very first movie they ever did. I watched this with my wife and she said, I see why Roddy Piper didn't do any other movies. And I said, he did do other movies and I think he did a really good job in this movie. What'd you think, Norbert? I thought he was, I think he was solid. I mean, let's look back to the eighties and the action stars that we had. We had John Claude Van Damme. We had Steven Seagal. We had Arnold Mike, Schwarzenegger. Michael Dudikoff. Do you guys remember him? Yes. I'm not going to pretend that he is a Marlon Brando quality actor, but I didn't disengage with his performance. That's a, that's a big tell for me. If I'm watching somebody and I disengage and go, yeah, I'm not buying this. I never had that feeling watching this movie. Now he goes a little over the top on the fight scene with his friend, which of all the things in the movie that made the least amount of sense for me in terms of how the one guy was just not going to, he just was not going to put on those glasses. I was thinking, dude, you'd rather be dead than put on those glasses. But at any rate, when I watched the performance, I thought, I'm into this. 
his performance maybe wasn't, like I said, it wasn't Marlon Brando that captivated me, but he didn't take me out of the experience. I was along for the ride. So for me, that's a solid job. Absolutely. And I think that he did a great job. We're talking about, I don't think Stallone started out as a great actor. I really do think he became a really good actor. And if you've not seen Tulsa King, you should check it out. He does a really good job in that series. And the fight scene in They Live is listed on a lot of movie reviews as the best fight in, in movie history. It's almost a six-minute long fight. And one of my favorite lines is, you put on these glasses or start eating that pavement. I love that. I thought that was awesome. <laughs> and he had the best lines in that movie. Oh, yeah, he did. He had, uh, what was the line? The... Uh... I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. That was great. Yeah. yeah, and then there was Life's a Bitch, and she's back in heat. Yeah, <laughs> and some of these lines he came up with, because he said when you're- he, uh, Roddy Piper? Or... Roddy Piper did, yeah. Because he said, wrestling, you're always talking smack. That was something that Carpenter let him do, which I thought was fun. Hey, you know what? If you don't like his acting, he's at least fun to watch on the movie. I thought he did a great job. He did take me out the experience. Yeah. I mean, I got done watching it. I was like, I don't know why he's not a bigger name. I've watched actors recently that I would be like, I'd rather watch Roddy Piper than them. I'm in 100% agreement. I thought the message was good. It's funny. It's been a long time since I've seen it. So the Meg Foster character, uh, the executive TV executive, I had really forgotten what her role really was. At first, I thought that was Kirstie Alley. They look a lot alike. They do. And Meg Foster has got the most beautiful blue eyes. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're striking. And Keith David is awesome. Keith David is in some of my favorite movies. He is also in The Thing. Yeah. When I'm watching this thing, and I haven't, like I said, I haven't seen it for years. Sometimes you watch 80s films and you're like, it generally falls on one or two ways. You go, oh, this is really good. I'm really enjoying this. Or, oh man, what was I thinking when I said I thought I liked this movie when I saw it originally? You know what I mean? It's kind of like yeah. one of the, this gets back to your point of storytelling and taking an idea that you want to talk about that you're upset with, or in this case, multiple ideas. And putting them in a way that you're not directly commenting on, on any one thing. I just think that is a lesson that today's storytellers could really make use of. I a hundred percent agree. We don't tell too much in the movie Starship Troopers. That movie was about the, basically the horror of fascism and people didn't see it that way. <laughs> Paul Verhoeven did a really good job with that movie. I love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies. But more people felt that it was more of a kind of a patriotic thing than a fascist thing. And he was not happy with it. If you want to know how he feels about it, listen to the DVD commentary. He was kind of pissed about it. But he still made a movie while his message didn't really come across in that movie. It's still a fantastic piece of entertainment. I think it's a it's an amazing piece of entertainment. And I'm glad that if I would have known it was really about fascism, 
I don't know if I would have liked it as much. I think that, to be honest, this really speaks to John Carpenter's talent as a storyteller, because I don't think you can watch one of his movies and understand the underlying base humanity thing he's trying to communicate. You may agree with it or not agree with it or whatever, but yeah, there's no doubt when you get done watching this movie, what he is railing against, not in particular political parties, political parties or situations, but a general truth. Yes, I agree with that. And the other thing too, is about the aliens are causing global warming to make our planet more like theirs. And so now you look at some of the ills of society or the world, and he's answered those as, well, it's the aliens. And I thought that was kind of brilliant because he's using real things that people are concerned with. So he's adding that to the narrative. So you feel like he kind of grounds the movie in real life. And I thought that was, that was kind of brilliant. Oh, there was a multiple things. One of the things that I was really struck with was the guy that was telling why they sold out. They're going to win anyway. We might as well get a little something. Why should we get run over too? And if that doesn't encapsulate human nature to a large degree, especially a certain set of people that want either money or power to the exclusion of almost all else, that, that is like perfect encapsulation of it. And it was like a couple minutes. You're like, oh yeah, that's absolutely true. And it resonates with you. Like, yeah, I know people like that. It's like we talked about last week. It's the cipher thing from the matrix. I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy, delicious. After nine years, you know what? I realize ignorance is bliss. And you have to think about it. If you think about it, a lot of things that are bad that people do to get in a better position. It's to get money, get notoriety, get wealth. Usually we don't like those people in movies and we want to see those people get their comeuppance. I think that's another strong piece because we talked about it in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's the same way in The Matrix. There's a lot of movies where there's somebody selling out other people or countries or the world. So I think that is a really strong theme in a few Carpenter movies, but in a lot of movies in general. I always want to root for the underdog. And like this movie, we've got the humans against the aliens and the aliens are winning. As we were, were talking about this, is another brilliant point of this movie is the nobility of the hero character. He was a working class guy. He has a sense of what base right or wrong is. And he didn't have to do what he did. Yeah. He wasn't perfect. He was flawed. As they say, his heart was in the right place. And I love that about him. He wasn't a character that you go, I can't tell the difference between him and the bad guys. There was something that was noble about his characters. Like, now odds were stacked against him, but yet he continued and he persevered. He didn't know what to do exactly. 
But when he landed in a position to do something, he was prepared to go out, do something good. And so for me, I loved that part of it too. He was not a perfect character, but he was a noble character. There was something about him that you go, all right, I can pull for that. Carpenter did a really good job of developing his character, that character of Nada. And also the underground were mostly, and I can't say all, but mostly the homeless people. So I thought that was another really cool um, thing that Carpenter did. There's the idea of people down on their luck, and then there's also people that are down on luck, but want the best for society. And I think, that once again, that's kind of a noble thing, too. I mean, because we see in the movie there was a character there that was down on his luck, and then he basically bought into it all, like you just said. He's like, why not sell out? Do you know that scene where he's the guy says, why should they get everything? People sell out all the time. That line was actually from an executive that was talking to Carpenter about something else. And Carpenter took that line and said, I've got to use that in this movie. One of the things that the more I think about this movie, the more we develop this conversation, the more I appreciate it. I really think for me, like I said, some of the special effects, I don't know what his budget was. His construction of the movie was really good. And there was a scene in the, I think it was a garbage truck where you know, that it dumps out with him in the truck and it's all from one point of view. That was kind of a brilliant piece of videography. He didn't phone this in. This was a well thought out piece. Like I said, the more we talk, the more I like this movie. There's a lot of brilliance to this movie and I'm not going to say it's Lawrence of Arabia. I do think that the ending, like the last 20 minutes, I'm not going to say they fell apart, but it almost like he ran out of things to do and they just, they, I don't know. I just, I felt like that the first half was better than that second half. Speaking of the budget, this thing cost about $3 million. He shot it in downtown LA. And there were some interesting things that went on with this movie. The movie was inspired by the comic book adaption of the short story. And there were so many ideas that were coming into this movie when he was writing it. I don't think he wanted to be sued, actually, is what I think. And he he used the pen name Frank Armitage, which actually that name came out as one of the characters in the movie. So a couple of other fun things about this movie were Roddy Piper had never heard of John Carpenter when he was asked to play the role. They were introduced by Piper's management after WrestleMania three. Piper was interested in getting more acting roles, but later admitted he had no idea who Carpenter was before meeting him. And then another thing that I thought was interesting was if you watch this movie, you will see them using the aliens using this little piece of equipment. And I don't know if you recognize that, Norbert, that piece of little equipment. It's got little two arms that swing out and lights are blinking. It was recycled from the Ghostbusters. It was one of those little checking for ghosts thing. And I thought uh, that was awesome seeing that. Of course, we talked about the iconic fight. 
there was like one guy, his name was Jeff Amata, who played almost every alien in the movie. <laughs> and he ended up doubling for a lot of stunt guys as well. Probably when he got that outfit on, I mean, they was like, let's get as many of these scenes knocked out as possible because this is a mess to, to get on and off. What's funny that I just think it's funny that, as they say, movie magic that happens that uh, we don't realize until we watch the movie. You don't even notice it. I never realized that was the Ghostbuster piece of uh, equipment until I was watching it this time. I go, man, that looks familiar. And I went ahead and looked it up. Also, another thing that I really liked, because I, I like Carpenter a lot, he made a movie called Prince of Darkness. Uh, I don't think it did very well. It's one of my favorite Carpenter movies, though, just because some of the idea behind it was kind of brilliant. I won't go into it. But there's a section when they're in the homeless camp in that movie, and one of the guys is talking about, hey, did you hear what happened in Seattle about the plague at that church? And I'm like, wow, he's talking about Prince of Darkness. So I love that he's referencing another one of his movies in his movie. They live. They just needed somebody to go up to the helicopter going, where's that going? That's going to the North Pole or whatever. It's go, yeah, it's going to Antarctica or wherever. Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, what's interesting about that is, is also a main character in the thing. So it would have been cool if he left there and he went, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go to Antarctica <laughs> and do this mission. I'm out of here. I'm getting away from civilization. <laughs> yeah. I'm tired of these aliens. I'm getting away from them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you, you know what Carpenter's biggest budget was? He seems to be doing a lot of this stuff on a shoestring. I don't know. I have no clue. And a lot of people ding him on the effects. I love good effects. And most of his, of course, all of his were practical in the time he was making these movies. I can't say that exactly because some of it was green screen. So that those effects were going on as well. But he... He didn't have a lot of money to make his movies. I don't know what it was. It was, like I said, They Live cost $3 million. I don't know if that was a lot of money. I don't think it was, even Not in even 88. So, well, well, Die Hard come out in 88, and I bet that had a way bigger budget. The budget of Die Hard was 25 to $35 million. And you could see a lot of that money on the screen, too. <laughs> but if you think about it, they're both relatively confined shoot. He, of course, I think Carpenter did that. He had to do that. But I just think that he has been underappreciated as a director. I would have loved to seen him, what he would have done with They Live with a $30 million budget or something like that, 10 times that much, or something healthy. Him having to do this on a shoestring, because all the elements are there. You didn't like it as well as the first half. Right. But in my, in my sort of calculus, as I was watching this movie, he put himself in a tough spot by working with a kind of a working class hero. How is he going to influence this war for humanity? And so there had to be some things that happened fortuitously to make this work. And... It wasn't such a plot. He didn't crowbar it too much to get it in there. It worked, at least from my mind, I'm like, 
in order to get out of this situation, he had to catch some breaks. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was a little more forgiving of that because he wasn't like he was, you know, dealing with the James Bond who had always had a plan or he was given a plan and he had to execute. They were winging it. They were just winging it. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And he even said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And so from that standpoint, that wasn't bad. That wasn't bad for me. Maybe it could have been a little better. I was watching this. I was thinking, yeah, how are you going to do this in this situation? He didn't have the force. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And uh, every now and then I like to think about what would it be like if I had this director do this movie? What would have been like if Carpenter would have done Star Wars, the last one, the rise of Skywalker, the ninth. Yeah. The rise of Skywalker. What if John Carpenter did the rise of Skywalker, the Star Wars story? Now we have to assume that he's given carte blanche to do it. However he wants. It would have been better. Well, I think it would have been, I think it would have been John Carpenter never worked a whole lot with, with CGI. I think he did his practical effects very well. But I always think about if he would have had just, this may be sacrilege to say, but what if they went back to, let's say, the movie The Thing, and they went to the film Masters, and they did like they did with Star Wars and cleaned it up. I wonder if we would like it. Probably not. A lot of people are purists when it comes to John Carpenter. My thought on this would be, it all depends on John Carpenter. If John Carpenter wants to put out a different release that has a director's cut, so to speak, I would be much more accepting of that as opposed to somebody, a studio going, we're going to give you the 40th anniversary of the thing, and we have done this for you. To me, it's his piece of art, and... If he wanted to update it, I heard we're both big fans of Frank Fazetta. And in his later years, he was prone to want to tinker with his paintings. And basically his wife barred him from the museum (laughs) to tinker with his painting. And I always think it's a little dangerous. I understand the impulse, but I always think at some point, when you have a work that's successful and people know that work, it's dangerous to want to change it. Yeah. But if anybody could do it, I would only trust it to John Comperdue's because that's his art. The thing they made in 2011 used a lot of CGI and there was a whole lot of people that didn't care for the movie. I watched it. I like it. I like that story. And I like the way that they told the prequel to it. But one thing that I think we talked about this when we reviewed the thing was in the prequel, they had a love interest. I'm kind of surprised they wouldn't have a remake with a love story with just getting that situation today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that may be the case. The black and white movie, The Thing, from 1951, there was a love interest in it. I love that movie as well. Go back to our movie that we're talking about right now. They could go back and change 
some of the CGI or put CGI characters for the aliens. But to me, that doesn't change any of the fundamentals of what he did storytelling-wise. No, that's true. And sometimes we talk about these movies that we watch in the past, and we say that this could never be made today. This would be a totally different movie. They could make this almost line for line today, and it would still have as much or more relevance than it did back then. I think that's Absolutely. another brilliant thing about this movie. It's the concepts are timeless. And so are the characters. So are the characters. Yes. Like we said, we have the hero is somebody that's a flawed, but pure person and the doubting friend and just the whole thing was just really well put together. And the new assistant manager or something, or what was her title? She was like the program manager for that television station yeah yeah that was interesting it was brilliantly underplayed which i loved about that character we probably have beat this horse to death my final thoughts on this movie are that basically this is still a relevant story the movie is a lot of fun there's some nostalgia in it there's a little bit of a camp to some things that they do with the aliens especially at the very end I think this is one of John Carpenter's best movies. And I know that's uh, that's very arguable because he came out with a lot of really good movies. But this is part of his Apocalypse trilogy, which contains They Live in the Mouth of Madness and uh, Prince of Darkness. And I recommend all those movies. But especially this one, this movie has the relevance and the characters that really make it almost timeless. Piggybacking on Pat's final thoughts, I think this is a movie that I feel is more relevant today in terms of the concept, and at least the way we perceive it. Given the last three or four years of what's happened in the world, I think this feels like, what was the law and order ripped from the headlines? Yeah. When you watch it, you'll go, Oh, yeah, I recognize that. Or I feel that. There's a certain emotional tap that you go, oh, yeah, I get this. I get what he's saying with this. And from that standpoint, and from just, like I said, simple characters that have some decency to them, I really liked it. I really liked Carpenter's direction on this. There is a little bit of camp here and there, but that doesn't take away from the timelessness of what he's trying to convey. I always wonder, did he know at that time that this was the relevance? I, so many of his movies come out and they're panned and then they become these cult favorites that people just can't get enough of. If you ever hear interviews, a lot of times he doesn't, he's more about music these days. He did most of the soundtracks for his stuff and he really quit directing movies and 2010. I would love to see another Carpenter film, an original Carpenter film come out. I'm hoping that he still has that Carpenter magic. I'll say this. If he doesn't, he's got a catalog of stuff that can be revisited. Absolutely. And enjoyed. And his movies have some of the most rewatchability of any movies I've seen. For me, that's how it is. Yeah, and I think this movie is, it's aging like a fine wine. It just gets better and better in, in the ways that we talked about. 
Yeah, it'd be great to see this movie someday and say, well, that can never happen here. Or, oh, that's, that's, that's not relevant for us. Yeah, that's not relevant. It'd be great if that happened, but okay. There you have it, folks. Another episode of True Fiction's Kino Club in the books. Thank you for joining us for another round of Movie Madness and for sharing your love for cinema. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you haven't already, take a minute to subscribe to True Fiction Podcast so you don't miss any episodes. Looking forward to seeing you back here next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your eyes and ears open for the truth in fiction. Good night. Good night. Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative. You're too late.